Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Head of Investments Nikki Eggers talks to Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, about concerns that we are watching another technology bubble inflate. They discuss if such dominance by a handful of companies is unusual and what is driving it. Also, does it make these still surging stock markets more vulnerable? And what has the Black Death got to do with any of it? Hello, welcome to another edition of our weekly podcast, Word on the Street, where we try to get to the bottom of the maelstrom of news around the economic, political and markets backdrop with some of our in-house specialists and experts. This week, I don't know what I said last week, Will, but it looks like it's just you and I. So. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> and no, I can't no blame pressure my there. this time. Yeah, not in the remote working environment. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, listen, I, I, I feel very lucky to, uh, to have you all to myself and to the listeners to talk about a subject that we really want to get under the skin a little bit of, which is, which is around US companies and the seemingly sort of massive dominance we we seem to have in the world with just a very small handful of these companies i guess you know what i'd like to unpick with you is you know is this unusual based on history we know history is your favorite uh, topic <laughs> what's driving it does it make these surging equity markets that 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 we have seen does that make them more vulnerable if if there's this sort of high level of concentration and and what what might change what are the wider implications for things like interest rates and and of course other things central to our our daily lives so there we go not much for you to to have to analyze and and bring to life and and help us (laughs) (laughs) so so i guess the companies i'm referring to there are, are typically sort of lumped into this, this fairly ugly acronym, FANGAM. In my mind's eye, I get a picture of, of a gentleman dancing badly, <laughs> sort of gangnam style. But the, the acronym stands for, I believe, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, which is actually Alphabet, but Google, Apple, and Microsoft. Frankly, I think, I think we must probably all be customers of all of those. But the statistic that really struck me around that was was that you know during during 2010 to 2019 about a fifth of the rise in the equity value across all of the quoted US companies of which I think there's what 7000 odd can be chalked up to these six names it it really does seem to have been their decade and and I'm not sure that the 2020s onwards um, are are any different so far so far this year for sure so the crisis that we've seen seems to have continued to play to their strengths. Will, have we have we ever seen anything like this before? Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you're just saying that it really does bring it home just how how sizable the dominance is. Um, and if you think about it, like two of those companies are kind of reinvigorated oldies, you know, Apple and Microsoft. Um, the latter, mm. you know, you can describe as an elephant that learned how to dance again pretty recently. <laughs> Apple, whether elephants learned how to dance in the first place, I don't know. But but Apple was given <laughs> up for dead in the late 1990s, if you remember. But, but it, it, to your point, you know, there are parallels. So if you go back into the kind of toddler era for the US stock market, the first half of the 19th century, Long before the the Standard and Poor's, the S and P five hundred came into being, banks are the dominant sector, and they pretty much are the market for that period. 
Then you go into a second half of the 19th century where transportation stocks start to take over. Um, you know, banks finance the exploding railroad system in the US and elsewhere. Uh, and you get a handful of, uh, you know, transport stocks accounting for, you know, 70% of the index before they fade to around a third of the market capitalization by the time, I think, basically by the time World War, World War One happens. And, and then what came next was it, I guess it was the energy sector. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So the growth of the industry, you know, powered by growth of industry powered by oil rather than steam and coal, that sort of pushed um, energy stocks for, you know, over half a century of dominance. I think you know there, there was a little bit of challenge later on in that period, but it, but it was a long period. So you know, if you look now, calling these five businesses technology stocks, it's obviously not quite right because you know these activities, you know, like you say, bestride several market sectors: advertising, mm-hmm. luxury, and mass market retail. But there's a technological or sort of a technology theme that unites them, I guess. The other interesting kind of unifying uh, strand is that they seem to have found the cure for, you know, the corporate aging process, at least for now. So for most companies, if you think about it, as they get bigger and older, you find that revenue growth slows as you start bumping up against Mm -hmm. competition and other impediments. You also start to find that your profitability should start to plateau. Uh, There's lots of factors in there, but one of them is the kind of bees to honeypot idea um, that, you know, lots of profits attract competition trying to get a slice of the action. However, for a range of reasons, these companies have managed to kind of thumb their nose at sub, such uh, such kind of conventions for now. And um, <laughs> um, Yeah. So, so what explains that seemingly eternal youth? You know, I think most people would look at companies like Ant, um, Apple and sort of think, yeah, they, they seem quite, quite hip, quite, quite young. I think using the word hip totally ages me there. Yeah, I, <laughs> I realised that the minute it came out. I was going to say. I was going to say, we were watching. Groovy I was watching in, a groovy, exactly. Well, <laughs> even worse, I was watching Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade with my son last night. And when that guy drinks the wrong cup, if you remember the bit, uh, and ages 100 years in five seconds, Hector, my son, just pointed at me and said, Look, daddy, it's just like you. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I know, shocking, shocking lack <laughs> of respect. I know. But anyway, I'm cutting corners and as usual, kind of massively oversimplifying a debate, um, which could easily occupy, you know, has occupied a lifetime of study uh, for some. But but how the markets have evolved, the markets these guys, these these companies are serving, have evolved with the help of these companies can be seen as instrumental um, in some of these stories. So if you think about traditional lines of manufacturing and services, so think about uh, furniture, shoes, chemicals, cars, catering, you know, mm-hmm. you know, there are anywhere from a handful of competitors to thousands. So no single company could really hope to control the market in a way or to have, importantly, average costs that are orders of magnitude below these the, the, those of their competitors. However, with kind of information products, um, these rules change. A software program can capture an entire market or get no market share at all. A movie could mm. become a blockbuster or go straight to um, uh, straight to the DVD bargain bin. Um, so incidentally, that sort of winner-take-all framework is often used to understand why companies in certain sectors are willing to pay such high wages to employees who think they can uh, think are even slightly better than those of the competition. Anything for an edge when the rewards in terms of market share terms are so potentially gigantic, if you think about it. But anyway, that, that, that's just one part of it. Um, and obviously, I'm scratching the surface, but, it, but it's, a, it's a very interesting area of study, to be honest. And But I guess that doesn't have to remain the case. I mean, especially I mean, sort of politically, there's, there's clearly rising discomfort with the dominance of, of key players in, in the markets. We're, we're seeing 
growing regulatory and, and legal threats to some of these names. And of course, with the with the oncoming U.S. election in November, there's there's you know this this is a, a bit of a battleground, isn't it? There's an assumption that a a Biden-Harris White House would would perhaps move quite aggressively against these companies. Yeah, I mean, uh, the answer to that is, yeah, no, it doesn't have to remain the same. And yes, there are certainly some signs uh, on that front. Uh, we did talk about this, uh, you know, recently, I think last week we talked about it. It's a long way to election day. Mm. And even if it is Biden-Harris, we are very wary of making kind of competent policy forecasts, as you know. But nonetheless, you know, most are pointing to the potential for stronger action on competition policy, among other things. Um, and I think, you know, Everyone will have seen the recent antitrust hearings uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives with uh, you know the CEOs from you know Apple, Amazon, uh, Facebook, and Google. Mm. But I think the point from us would be don't 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 hold your breath. These things can take a long time, and the two sides of the American political aisle don't view these issues in the same way at the moment. And that was very clear. Uh, it was notable in these hearings, for instance, that the main preoccupation of many of the Republican representatives was was not, um, you know, in terms of competition, it was more the anti-conservative bias uh, amongst these tech titans and their ability to spread such bias. The other thing to note, um, that in the US and in other jurisdictions, quite a lot of the kind of allowable threshold for monopolistic power or corporate dominance is seen through the prism of um, of consumer prices. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting angle because these, these companies have been instrumental in bringing down prices for consumers. I mean, think about you know, what a computer would have cost 20, 25 years ago versus versus the, the phone that you have in your pocket. I mean, surely that's a massive positive to human well-being. Yeah, in some senses it is. I mean, in, you know, that's certainly one angle. The problem is here, it, it, again, it, I always end up saying this, but it, it, disentangling it all from, you know, the other related aspects, wages, aggregate living standards and so on, it's fiendishly complex. And as I say, I, that's my cop-out for everything. But the example I always use is to try, to try and convey this complexity revolves around comparing an hour of time, say today, in the context of these kind of disinflationary technologies with a comparable time in the past. So imagine, imagine this. So last night, for instance, I go to last night after I wrestle these uh, perpetually mutinous children into bed, uh, I put, (laughs) (laughs) then they come back out again. Uh, I put all, imagine that I put all the clothes in the washing machine. I load the dishwasher. I go on to Deliveroo. I order some delicious uh, Turkish from a nearby restaurant. Maybe I go back uh, onto log on to do a bit more work with all of the access I might've had from going into the physical office. Now, after an hour, I have clean clothes, clean plates, a delicious Ishkander kebab, some lamb chops, maybe some uh, baklava or something else delicious. And I've done 45 minutes of work. Now, how long would that hour have taken me 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago? It would have taken me weeks, days. It would have been unachievable. So the point is that the evolution of wages and prices don't tell you all you need uh, to know about the evolution of living standards. It, it, it's just so complicated. I, I know I know that's a cop-out, but it, I always feel that this debate gets oversimplified in the media considerably with regards to you know trends in wages and trends in in prices in a way. Yeah, I mean, look, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. All, all those activities... Firstly, I'm impressed that you do most of them, especially the work. I'm not sure I believe that. Um, <laughs> no, it's a lie. It's a lie. I just want to fail. <laughs> but, but just just thinking about you know the the, the falling prices and, and and the wider effects you talk about there, it's another area that that I think it's worth us, us uh, zooming in on a little bit this week. You know, we we we've seen the apparently sort of seismic change in the way that central 
bankers are planning to respond to inflation or, or not, right? This this comes from the long-awaited speech from, from Jay Powell, chair of the US Federal Reserve, the most important central bank in the world, as we know, at Jackson Hole. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think... For a number of reasons, you know, moderately rising prices make many aspects of managing, uh, you know, many aspects of the, the economy easier to manage. You know, look at the other way, you know, outright falling prices, deflation, are a genuinely terrifying economic phenomenon uh, and very hard to escape as they become, you know, they become a sort of self-reinforcing whirlpool. Mm. So falling prices mean beginners, consumers begin to defer purchases and the expectation of getting something cheaper which then feeds into wages and back into prices and so on, it, it, it's something you don't want to experience. So central bankers around the world have worried a lot about this in the last few years as measured inflation has been coming in below target, um, which tends to be around 2%. Now, you put this pre-existing bias towards trying to boost inflation to you know to try and run the engine a little bit hotter, if you will, with the pandemic. And studies, the, the studies, one in particular going back to the Black Death, showing quite a pronounced effect from these pandemics on ensuing growth and inflation. Well, you put all that together and you get central banks moving towards the idea that they need to try even harder uh, to get some inflation, to press the accelerator um, a little bit more and to run that economy a little bit hotter. And I guess that that's that's sort of some of the context. And and I hear you, right? But, but to what degree can we really look to say, the Black Death experience um, and, and you know, the economy that we're living in today. I mean, how, how robust are these findings and, and how much can we really use it to help inform our thinking or understanding of the environment we're in today? Yeah, it's, it's a very fair question. And actually, this paper is already being misused, in my opinion, through no fault of the authors uh, who actually provided pretty thorough context to their findings. But basically, everyone's taking the headline. But but the the... Mm. These sort of three very well uh, respected economists have looked at the long run effects from past pandemics going back to 1300 or I think 13, uh, 1331, I think, when the Black Death starts, going all the way up to H1N1. And they do find a fairly substantial and durable hit to growth and inflation for at least the 20 years after, after a pandemic. Now, there is some reasonable intuition here as well associated with kind of loss of life without the destruction of your capital stock, which comes with wars, um, but also increased saving from kind of, you know, from the pandemic survivors. However, you know, to your point, they rightly point to three important factors with regards to today's pandemic. So the first is that the death toll of COVID-19 relative to the total population could be meaningfully smaller uh, than some of those past pandemics, mm. advances in healthcare, so on, so on, the stuff we've discussed, hopefully, exactly. Mm. Um, and the second point is that COVID-19 has been found to kind of exaggerate pre-existing mortality risk, if you look at the mortality uh, statistics. So you find that um, the elderly are in some of the highest risk categories. Now, that is no less tragic or terrifying for those affected. But in cold, hard economics, this is important context for this comparison, because we're looking back at a time when people had much shorter life expectancy, even infant mortality adjusted. So making comparisons then to now, that does mute that comparison quite a bit in terms of the implications you can draw for it. And another major difference, and the final one really, is that policy response, which we've talked about enough, but this time really is different. I think it's interesting analysis, but ignore those who give you the headline conclusions of lower growth and lower inflation without the context points, I think. So it, it's it's sounding like there are some things that you and the team are just, you know, keeping keeping a weather eye out for some 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 risks that could be out there. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so so everything you've said 
bring it all together, coming back to those big tech firms that that really seem to to be top of our consciousness, certainly top of the indices at the moment. It sounds like we're perhaps a bit skeptical of their of their ability to continue to dominate in, in, in to that extent. Would that be a fair synopsis? Do you, would would you see that as a bigger potential risk or a continued opportunity? Yes, I think that's probably right, Nikki. I mean, I think there are with some of them. You know, you're starting to have to make some pretty strong assumptions about continued dominance in order to want to hold them in isolation. However, I think, you know, even with, even if the valuations contract by a reasonable degree, the returns on offer from owning these businesses, owning the equity, do still suggest quite significantly superior returns uh, than anything on offer in you know in a bank account or a bond market or a government bond market now risk mm. is, is is greater too obviously but i think that's quite important just to bear in mind yeah and and i guess that sort of chimes with the message we're we're pretty much weekly giving out which is that we shouldn't get too focused on trying to trying to find the the few outsize winners um, and try to avoid the outsize losers, you know, that, that things can change on a dime and, and we can't always be sort of crystal ball gazers and, and getting it getting it right. Would that be fair to say? Yes, there's no truer statement. I think, you know, for sure, you know, you want to own some of these tech stocks, you know, and look more broadly, have a little gold, maybe even some treasuries. You know, however, diversification beyond this small palette of recent winners it's not a sign of weakness or indecision. It is an entirely necessary expression of your humility about what comes next for the world uh, from a regulatory, economic or indeed socio-political uh, perspective. So, you know, we've talked about it before uh, uh, on this podcast, but this is why JP, you know, our head of asset allocation and the guys in asset allocation spend so much time in designing an asset allocation process that does not just lean on the last 10 years of market experiences, but uses a much longer look back and remixes that uh, that look back in order to mathematically imagine hundreds of thousands of viable futures and in the process, gaining a kind of much more all-weather, multi-asset class sons and portfolios. It's a necessarily difficult, painstaking, you know, incredibly challenging, intellectually demanding process that we're asking of these guys. But it's entirely necessary uh, in the context of that um, that unknowable future, the, the changes that you mentioned that can happen on a dime in the regulatory and other backdrops. So, yeah, it makes it endlessly interesting. Um, and I think the conclusion would be, look, you know, that these tech stocks are still, there's no sort of certainty that their era of dominance would end. And, you know, the first points we made about, um, you know, some of the long eras of dominance of previous sectors and so on. But but you don't want to bet all of your uh, savings on that eventuality. Uh, cater to other potential scenarios as well. Very wise. Well said. Thank you, Will. So thank you very much to our, our listeners. And we'll look forward to being back with you next week. And we might even bring some extra guests along. Thanks a lot. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.